0: Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is the sixth episode in the Summer Encore series. In this episode, I chat with Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener. Nancy's book debuted in 2017, and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I highly recommend you pick it up. It goes perfectly with books such as Tallamy's Bringing Nature Home, and Benjamin Vogt's A New Garden Ethic. Links to the original episode and where to find Nancy online and purchase her book will be in the show notes at thegardenpathpodcast.com. You can find me online at the Garden Path Podcast on Instagram. Or drop me an email at thegardenpathpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. All right, on to the episode. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Um, I saw your book about maybe four or five months ago. It kept coming up in my digital library lending feed for um, you know, gardening type books, and I kept like just kind of going past it. And then one day I'm like, well, I'm gonna click this. <laughs> And I was like, oh, this is very intriguing, mostly because I kept seeing and being very uncomfortable this summer with how much um, bug averse people are in gardening. Yes. (laughs) So I guess if you would like to just kind of do an introduction of who you are, where you're located and where your garden is, and there's an introduction about humane gardening in your book and kind of go from there.
1: Sure. Um, Well, so I'm Nancy Lawson and I garden in Sykesville, Maryland, which is um, between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And I have been a gardener for about 20 years and uh, purchased our house in 2000. And so very shortly after that, I became interested in native plants and their effect on wildlife. And I was working for um, about 17 years at the Humane Society of the United States as an editor and writer and um, worked a lot with wildlife biologists. So I got kind of a a taste of sort of the effects that are misguided landscaping routines have on the larger misunderstood animals like deer and raccoons and uh, rabbits and right. And then the little mini fauna, of course, as you mentioned, the insects um, and how much we tend to sort of dismiss and malign them. Uh, I learned through my ventures in the native plant world. So I wrote this book to kind of bring those two worlds together. Um, as a plant person and an animal person, I saw um, kind of somewhere along my journey that a lot, of, a lot of people in these two realms don't always cross over. There's not a lot of collaboration sometimes uh, among people who consider themselves plant people and people who are animal advocates. And um, that became frustrating to me.
0: I, I definitely agree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So you said you've been gardening about 20 years or so, but, um, in your book, you talk about your father being a plants man. Um, and so you were kind of around plants and gardens for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, so when you, I mean, I know when I'm a kid, I'm pretty bug averse and animal, like scared of things. And it's definitely been something that's evolved over time. Uh, my appreciation for the balance of, of nature. Um, how did, how were, how were you as a child and how did your, your dad influence you at all?
1: Yeah. um, Well, as a kid, we also went on a lot of camping trips. So my, my dad was um, a plant pathologist and his main um, specialty was in the more uh, garden house plant greenhouse raised plants area. Mm -hmm. He worked for the OCA um, but he carved out his entire front lawn uh, into gardens, which wasn't really done at the time. And we had a little backwoods that I thought of as a forest that he created. And so I did, I was really into like watching ants and all of those things for a while. And of course, as I got older, got more interested in teenage things like boys and stuff and kind of forgot <laughs> about it. <laughs> and um but I, I think that er, when you get that early grounding, so to speak, you really don't ever lose it. It always becomes a part of you. And uh, so while I was working at the Humane Society, um, after I'd been in newspapers and I just happened to get this job at the Humane Society, and I started, there were two things that happened. Um, I I started working on this project to write about uh, the conflicts that people were having with Canada geese and
0: right,
1: yep. yeah. And, um, and learn that so much of that could be resolved with plants because the geese like to hang around all these communities that have mowed down turf grass that abuts lakes and such. And mm-hmm. they don't like it when you put buffers because they don't have a quick escape into the water. And that just made so much sense to me. So that was one thing um, where, that made me start thinking about, gosh, if we could just, if we could just think a little bit more about the animals in our midst when we're planting, um, everyone would get along so much better. And then I had these early experiences in my own garden when we didn't have much here yet. You know, we had like uh, some invasive shrubs and. <laughs> a couple trees and and two acres of grass. And so when I would put things in, my little first garden attempts, um, one year I loved sunflowers and I had sunflowers. And then something came and started eating them. I don't even remember what it was, but I kept trying to idea. And in the process, I went down this rabbit hole and I found this document about sunflower seed and how, um, how, a lot of the sunflower um, growers were killing birds that were eating sunflower seed mm. in their fields. And then some of that sunflower seed was ending up in bird seed bags, <laughs> Right. <laughs> and being shipped to all of us to fill our bird feeders. And I was just like, we don't make any sense at all. What are we doing? And there again, we need to, have the seeds growing in our own yards um, as much as we can instead of outsourcing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) hurting these birds to help these birds. We're just negating everything, right? Right. So that, yeah, made me start thinking about what I called at the time, like humane landscaping. And, um, and then I just sort of started, started doing it uh, privately and individually. And the more I got into it, the more I wanted to spread the word and started writing columns about it for our magazines and stuff.
0: So when you, you were writing those columns, did, I mean, you're obviously targeting a particular audience who's going to have the same kind of thought process as you, but, um, what kind of uh, reactions did you have about connecting these two, the, the plantings and the wildlife? Um, was it generally good or did you have any kind of negative um,
1: from the readers, we didn't, I didn't really get negative pushback. And I would say that they were mainly general public, because it was 500,000 people who a lot of them signed up for our magazines, because um, they were supporting our efforts to fight puppy mills and things like that. So generally, okay. yeah, compassionate people, but maybe didn't know a lot about this subject. I would say that that's typical of uh, animal welfare in general. Um, there's a lot of focus on On the animals, you know, that we can't see who are being raised for, uh, who are being raised inhumanely. Um, So factory farming and puppy mills and all these things that are super important. But what people don't realize is there's so many animals right outside our door that we're not, we can't necessarily see either unless we take a closer look. And, And so the reaction's... They tend to it, you know. People tend tended to early on kind of think that I was doing something cute, you know, <laughs> gardening, you know, flowers, and um, even if they're, I mean, even some of my really good friends. Um, and uh, so it's taken a while to break through that. And I think some of the some of these statistics that we can cite, some of these things that we can talk about with these lesser known animals, really surprise people um, and really make them want to help, but it, it's getting that information out. That's, you know, that's, that's a challenge.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would never would have thought about, I mean, probably if I'd thought a little deeper about the sunflowers and, and, and it right. just makes sense, but I, yeah, I wouldn't have given it two thoughts, <laughs> but right, right. It's those little things that, uh yeah, the general public probably doesn't really, Uh, acknowledge.
1: Yeah, I just found out about it from a random Google search. You know, I'm always (laughs) going down these random strings. And yeah, so it's no wonder people aren't exposed. You just wouldn't make the connection unless you happen to hear it from somebody or read it.
0: Right. So when you were, you got your yard and you were beginning to transform it, um, you wrote about some mistakes you made um, removing native plants when you're probably shouldn't have and identifying plant or animals or bugs (laughs) incorrectly. (laughs) Um, So I guess, what did you learn from that experience that you would kind of tell other homeowners who may either just purchasing the property or maybe they've been here for 10 years and they still have their, you know, typical landscape um, that they're wanting to start maybe some humane gardening. What, what would you suggest for them to do?
1: Yeah. So I think the, Most important thing is to question your own assumptions, question the cultural assumptions that you make. So when you first do see something like that, like you see uh, an insect you've never seen before, or you see something has nibbled your plant, don't assume it's bad. Don't assume you even know what it is. You know, a lot of the conflicts and a lot of the um, uh, sort of uh, insults that get hurled at wildlife chemically and otherwise Um, happen because people misidentify things or they they think that um, a plant's going to be destroyed or the house will be taken over when actually a lot of these animals are really really helpful in the environment and you know there are checks and balances Um, and so I would say first question your assumptions and then try to just view the world from the perspective of other species and remember that we're not the only, you know, we, we are the dominant species on the planet now. And so when people say, oh, there's too many deer, or there's too many rabbits, or this or that, <laughs> it's sort of just sort of accepted as like, oh, yeah, there are, you know, people start talking about it, and then they think it's true. And instead of thinking, well, wait a minute here, like, w- compared to what, compared to whom, and... um why are there why are they here and what can we do to help them or mitigate conflict with
0: them right well it's like the deer their population is expanding because there's no predators and humans have killed predators so yeah it's a domino effect right right and so oh go ahead (laughs)
1: Yeah. I'm sure you always hear people say, also like, I have a brown thumb. I, I I kill plants and things like that, and they have to follow these certain exacting recipes. I mean, I certainly did when I started, and um, that's enough. And plants were here, start something like 700 million years before we got here, right? So right. they knew what to do. We're fine without us. And I think in the effort to sort of cultivate one house plant and potentially see it not do so well, people assume they're not going to be able to do this. But I think it's innate in all of us that we can, and things can grow themselves. So if you're a new homeowner, it's important to sort of take an inventory of what's already on your property and first to see who's visiting, see what's growing. And there's so many great, you know, plant ID, Facebook groups, and and things that you can turn to, insect identification Uh, So now's a really great time to be starting. There's a lot more than when I first started, um, support and information for people.
0: Oh, yeah, it's a completely different uh, atmosphere. I think the last five to seven years, it's kind of exploded. There's a lot more information available. Yeah. Um, So you talked about people, like, identifying what's already on their property. But I think a lot of people would say, well, that's a weed. I've been taught that's a weed. And – why should I keep it? Um, what's the benefit to it? How do you how do you ex- talk to these people or the people you interact with? How have you helped yeah. them understand the benefits of keeping particular plants? That I mean, some of them, yes, truly, may be an invasive <laughs> weed, right. <laughs> right? But others are probably native plants that have that are supporting particular wildlife. Um, yeah, are you battling that resistance?
1: Well, first I, I try to break down those terms in general as word weed. It's impossible to avoid sometimes, but it, people know, okay, all of these plants are invasive. They belong somewhere in the world. They help somebody somewhere. In- right, right. Um, well, I was going to say, so the idea that weeds, um, the term weed is, is sort of one that I try not to use very much because it's so confusing. And mm-hmm. um, even if a plant, is invasive or introduced here it does help somebody in some part of the world so and you're trying to identify a plant and you have that in mind then you'll be a little bit more open to understanding that a lot of these plants that are sprouting that were dormant in your seed bank or that birds are coming and bringing into your yard are actually native plants and some of the ones that are Really beneficial to native bees, caterpillars are the ones that get mowed down so much like violets, uh, flea banes, um common evening primroses, goldenrods, you know which people mistake for um ragweed, ragweed um, and these little uh, fall small fall asters, these things that are across the continent and um so when I talk to people about these these plants milkweed was once actually very recent until very recently um, maligned in the same way as these other other plants that tend to sprout and thrive on their own and uh, and so that's one way to kind of introduce people to this idea like the the lack of concern or or um, affection for milkweed led to this point for monarch butterflies which rely on it don't have enough of these plants anymore and then there's all of these other relationships in nature with these other native plants that we've tended to underappreciate, that haven't even been fully studied yet you know there's specialist bees for the violets who can only gather their pollen from from violets for their young and specialist bees for the primroses and goldenrods and um, and so, and there's caterpillars who need those plants, um, and don't eat anything else. And so that's where I start, um, with that. And, and it can be a joy to see these plants coming up and not know what they are, let them go and then see once they start to flower, just how many creatures are coming to eat them.
0: Yes, I, uh, I definitely agree. I, uh, have some false nettle that I've just of wow. let grow around and I really was trying to attract red admirals. And yes. um, well, something definitely came and used it and rolled itself <laughs> up. But I, I got the caterpillar one to kind of emerge one day. So I could see, I had to wait till evening for it to come out. And, and now I can't figure out what kind of caterpillar it is because it's definitely not a red admiral. And, um, <laughs> and I just kind of had a brief conversation with my husband. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. And he's like, you know, there's just a, you know, everybody says online that the false nettle will be used by like Eastern commas, red admirals and um, question marks. But I'm like, well, something else is using this. And he's like, well, there's a ton of plants that don't really, you know, or animals that use plants that just people don't know about. Scientists haven't studied it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So
1: (laughs) Right. So a little moth. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it moves so fast. I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It was very fast. Was it a tiny one? Yeah, it was, was pretty it tiny. tiny. Um, oh. It was probably not even an inch long. Um, and it wasn't quite an inchworm like movement, but it was very speedy. I mean, I've never seen a caterpillar like that. So. Oh,
1: that's so cool. I just planted three false nettle summer,
0: um, so I'm excited to see who
1: comes. Yeah. I think we might have some in our woods, but sometimes I'll plant just so I can get to know that native plant really well so that I know exactly what it is
0: yeah you know right That's... yeah these we are our, our sprout naturally down by our pond but our general yard is kind of very music and moist so it'll mm. sprout wherever you leave it right. <laughs> So i've been trying to leave some in the garden and i'll pull some here and there that i'm like i really don't want you here but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, but I have left it because i did want to see if i could get red admirals but i got something else entirely so yeah
1: that would be neat to see if you could figure it out yeah
0: um, so I guess on kind of on that topic, I mean, we talked about monarchs and the milkweed. And I guess I'm just noticing a definite like pollinator bias. So mm-hmm. everybody's, yes, save the, save the monarchs, save the honeybees. I mean, sometimes I see people excited about black swallowtails, but you get anything else eating any other plant and it's kill it, kill it, kill it. That's how it seems to be, whether you're an organic or just a conventional gardener. So
1: yeah,
0: I, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to change that narrative. And sometimes I, I usually restrain myself from saying anything. <laughs> yeah. But, um,
1: that's so-
0: okay. So
1: with the honeybee issue, um, yeah, the, the dominant, um, save the bees life and be a honeybee keeper. And I think that's been a really tough. And I wrote an article early this year, how to really save the bees. And I was really concerned about, it. I didn't want it to sound like um, honeybees, you know, they they are an introduced species from Europe and they're basically a domesticated animal now. Mm-hmm. Um uh, important in general they deserve you know their own they deserve I believe like any other animal but at the same time as you know ease by getting a honeybee hive is else because honeybee so be the bees in your backyard and um and, and so it's much better to be a wild beekeeper and so that's how i talk about it and people,
0: um are we lost again yeah a little bit i don't yeah it may be like wi-fi fading in and out or something
1: yeah mine mine is okay here but Um, do you want to try it again or do you, can you edit this or?
0: Yeah, I can edit, but I think if you want to just back up a little bit and talk about the honeybees, I think that would be okay.
1: Okay. Start over with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So, so yeah, a lot of times the, the dominant reframe for saving the bees is save the bees, get a honeybee hive, but I really encourage people instead to be a wild beekeeper. And when I've, Really written out the details as to why, and I've presented it in my talks. I've been surprised by how um, receptive people are to it. I mean, I try to be very sensitive to the fact that honeybees are important pollinators; they're animals deserving of of good treatment in their own right. But um, but there are so many aspects of focusing on them exclusively that could be to the detriment of our native bees because we have four thousand native bee species are nearly 4000 native bee species and most of them none of them nest in hives as you know and most mm-hmm. of them 70% of them are in the ground and 30% of them are in twigs and logs and um and other cavities and so if we're not planting for them and not cultivating for them and leaving spaces for them to nest then um then we're not really helping to save the bees at all, so, uh, so, to your question about how do you kind of um, get people to understand that there's more to it, I think constantly showing these pictures of like the mother leaf cutter bee taking out little leaf pieces from grapevine leaves and rosebush leaves and things like that to line her nest are really effective to to show people these are who these animals are, you know they have right. a a whole life cycle onto their own and, and habits that are unlike any other creatures. And most people really appreciate things like that. They just haven't been exposed to them.
0: Right. I I think that's a good, definitely a good way show instead of tell maybe.
1: Yeah. And, 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 you know, the whole thing with buzz pollination and how bumblebees and sweat bees, and I think some mining bees, carpenter bees can buzz pollinate, And honeybees can't. And so it's really our native bees who are pollinating tomatoes and eggplants and blueberries and things like wild senna, which then go on to make seeds that feed wild turkeys and other birds. Right. And I had read about it. I had talked about it, but it wasn't until this summer I walked by a wild senna plant on a really quiet morning and I, I heard this happening and it was the coolest thing because it's a different sound from the flight of a bumblebee. Like the the flight is like, zzz, and then the, the buzz pollinating, they stop at a flare and it's much more intense and higher pitched. And, um, and just to actually see it and hear it was, was, a, was an amazing thing. So I play that when I can um, for people and talks and stuff.
0: Yeah. I think this, the art of noticing and uh, paying attention is, is, probably a key to some of this as well I guess as you evolve as as a gardener you start noticing and paying attention and the curiosity factor I guess
1: exactly and it makes it so much fun it's like you
0: learn something new every day about who shares the world with you yes um to beyond I guess beyond pollinators um you also address a lot of your larger wildlife interactions um snakes and rabbits and deer and that kind of thing. Um, you know, as people, as we've had suburban expansion, so they clear cut and built all these tract homes, but, you know, you get 20 or 30 years and the canopy starts filling back in and things come back. And I think there's probably been a increase in wildlife interactions. What are the, some of the bigger ones you've seen? Um, not even maybe just for yourself or in the media or people talking about, but, How have, how can you address some of these interactions humanely?
1: Yeah. So mainly people are upset that animals are eating their plants. Right. Right. So here it's deer and rabbits, uh, and, and groundhogs, um, (laughs) and it's cyclical. (laughs) And I, I, what I like to do mainly is talk to people about the fact that we need a lot more plants for, because we're not the only creatures who need plants, both for our shelter and our nutrition. And if you, you know, if you have a manicured lawn of two acres, like the neighbors that I have around here, a lot of them have that and you're not leaving little forbs for the rabbits, like dandelions and clovers, and these little broadleaf plants that they love, then they're gonna go and look in your garden. And they'll right. go there sometimes anyway, but what we found is when we have all of this more natural sort of um, ground cover, that's where the rabbits are, and so, I actually had the neatest experience in New York when I went up and gave a talk there uh, somebody i was I was talking to said that she had recently relocated a rabbit for eating her greens mm-hmm. and actually, her husband told me, and did you tell her that we just did that and And she said, "No, no, because I just learned from her talk that that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know the relocated animals, you could be separating them from their young, and they they don't know their new territory. They don't have that mental map anymore. They become easy prey and stuff. So, so I had talked about that, and so um, so she was feeling bad, and I told her, "Don't worry about it. Like we we all do things we don't realize until we hear about right." And a lot of people think that that's humane, and so um, the next morning we were in her garden. And, um, she, I was inside, her husband was showing me his model airplanes and she, she stayed outside and she actually watched as a rabbit came right in front of her and started pulling a dandelion, um, uh, stem from the bottom Mm -hmm. and like. Pulled it from the bottom all the way in, seed head and all, whirling it around uh, the entire thing <laughs> into her mouth, and we got this. She got this great video, and she's letting me use it in my talks and stuff. And it transformed her. Now she's got cover, you know, wire covers over her greens, her raised buds and. And she's planted an eco lawn, which she had started already, but once she saw that, she was like, Oh my gosh, so they'll eat other things too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it'll take the pressure off. And she started to decide to start planting more greens outside of the vegetable bed, vegetable beds just for the rabbits. And... Some
0: kind of sacrificial stuff. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: And that's what I that's what we've started doing for deer. I mean, deer are really, really um, considered so such such a problem here, and they're really not in our at our place. I mean, um, I have different little things that I do that I rotate as in terms of repellents, like the soaps on the stakes, and I ask my husband to pee around the garden sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, I thought that was interesting in your book that you said yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. Um, but
1: the main thing is that we let when plants come up, when trees come up, like suckering trees, like elder or shrubs, like elderberries or sassafras mm-hmm. or sumac we let them and we, you can do that in a small space. Cause we have these areas of like 10 by 10 feet or 12 by 12 feet where we've got this whole thing of suckering trees. There's probably at least 50 in that space. And that's what deer like to survive on in the winter, especially. And so they'll come and they'll prune it down and they'll leave some of the trees, but they'll prune others. And in that way, you know, that was just lawn before. It mean, was just something that we mowed. mm mm-hmm and you know why not leave that and let them and so it just a few weeks ago we had a sumac coming up right near our clothesline and my husband was like i better move that
0: i said don't worry about it, <laughs> take, they, take they find it. yeah and they did you know so um what about snakes i don't know how many snakes you have in the area i think there's probably some timber rattlesnakes um how do you how, how do you do address that in your yard? And I guess it's probably one of the ones that people are more fearful of and are probably quicker to dispatch rather than something like a rabbit.
1: <laughs> yes, I think you're right. Um I we we actually do have snakes, but we don't we don't see them a lot. We see a few each summer. Um we saw one on our roof last summer. Um no. And sunning himself, um, th- they probably actually do go into our attic we've we we've got to do some uh, uh, repair. Um, there's a little hole I think they went in and got some mice in there mm-hmm. um, so when we can make sure all the animals are out, we'll fix that and um, but uh, in general, um, you know I mean the snakes are really helpful in your habitat because they they do um, they do provide natural rodent control and um, they're 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 so um, they're so innocuous people are afraid of them because they're different you know Be- yeah. because they, they they move so quickly and and in some areas of the country I know there are some that um, that are there are more more snakes that are venomous than here um, Right. But, generally speaking they they don't want anything to do with us like most wild animals and so i kind of get frustrated when i see advice to um piles so that there won't be any snakes because you're not only removing advice advocates too because they don't want people hurting snakes but you're also removing habitat for turtles and bees and so many other and birds for, uh, mm-hmm. if you don't have your brush piles. So I, I sort of like to macro view with snakes too. Um, but what, what kind of questions are you serious? Because I, it's not something except for like an ir- irrational fear that I hear usually.
0: You cut out just a little bit. What was the question?
1: the questions based on sort of irrational fear rather than practical questions about snakes. I was just curious what kind you,
0: you deal with um, Um, there. I don't really get too many questions. It's mostly what I see and what I've, you know, experienced, you know, firsthand. Um, I definitely seem to see like they seem to be targeted on roads. You know, people don't avoid them. They will run right over them.
1: Um, And then
0: my neighbor, you know, he's killed a few snakes. Whereas we've, And we have coral snakes in the area and we've had several in our yard. And so people will go for those um, for sure. And it's just, and other interactions, no matter what, any snake is a bad snake, whether it's poisonous or venomous or not.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it goes to the larger advice to so eat the insects that you, you don't plants and, and, um, and that, you know, there are, there are, band. I, I think of, you're cutting out you know, again. Like cutting out again. <laughs> oh, I, I understand the of, uh, of an, of a strange animal you haven't seen before. You're not used to, um, but I would say that it's sort of incumbent upon us to kind of question our fears you know and question our thing in the same way that we try to do when we're interacting with a stranger or or you know something else that's new in our lives right right yeah we should these are species that were always here we're we're much more powerful and they have a desire to stay away from us (laughs) right yeah, and so, and I do kind of helping people get to know these animals and knowing them. Like, I, sh- I shared a snake photo, and you, you can't help but his face looking at me. And he was tiny, you know, we put a quarter next to him. And I don't know, I think sometimes those things help people see that these are individuals, they're not just some massive,
0: you know, monsters coming to get you. <laughs> right, right, right. It's not right. a gang of snakes <laughs> coming up your front door. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yes so we'll go back to your publisher approaching you to write this book and can you talk about that process a little bit um and then anything you do differently uh, now that the book's out
1: yeah so the the editorial director emailed me um in 2014 to ask if i'd be interested in writing the book based on my column that i write for all animals magazine and so I did the proposal and um, and then I, I actually started writing probably about a year before I submitted it. So from research and interviews and writing and rewriting, it took me about a year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I really, really thought long and hard the whole time about how to put it together. And so... There's a lot that I wouldn't do differently. Uh, There's always, as a writer, things that you think, oh, I could have said this or added that or said that differently. But overall, I know how much work and heart I put into it. One of the things that I wanted to do and couldn't do was um, the – and I've gotten a couple comments about it. The index in the back of of the plant names – um, some people, I think, think that those are recommended plants. So they are native plants by region.
0: Oh, I see. Yes. But <laughs> I only,
1: yeah, you had. Mm-hmm. I, I did those mainly because in that context of that type of book, which was a lot of narrative profiles, if I had added the scientific names within the narrative, it would have been so hard to read.
0: Right, right.
1: And so, but I wanted people to know what plants I was talking about, because of course, common names can be really confusing and applied mm-hmm. to some very different plants. Um, so I wasn't, we weren't sure how to address that. But in the future, um, I, I'm not sure if, if the book were more, were, were larger and had more space, we might've had room to do it along the side or something like that. Um, the other thing is that it was, it's a relatively small book. And so I, I profiled six different people in tried to get them in different regions of the country with different climates and different types of plants to show that these principles are universal and that they can be applied in any setting and by people with different means and everything. Um, but I would really like to uh, do have more profiles because there's so many different um places in this country that couldn't make it in there. And so I started doing those online, something I called Humane Gardening Heroes. And and my goal is to do a person in every state, at least one person. So between that and the book, I have 11. So I have 39 to go. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, I I think that's one thing I appreciated of the book is that you it wasn't particularly regional um, as some gardening books can be. Um, And then, yeah, I did check out your blog and looked at the other people you've been profiling as well, which I thought was pretty interesting too. Yeah. How did you find those people? Did they, you already kind of know them or just put some feelers out?
1: Yeah. So the, the people in the book and online, I just kind of look I, through as many resources I have as I have books and websites. And I sometimes have met people through just connecting on social media and the, what I really looked for as a priority were people who weren't selectively compassionate, who, 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 who understood the, the things that we've been talking about that, you know, it's not just about the monarch butterflies. It's, 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 it's also about the milkweed beetles who eat. Right. Who eat, yeah. And, and, um, and, and the rabbits and the deer and, and people who, who understand that it's a whole system and that, that there needs to be a macro view of this, not just a short term thinking applied to how we manage our outdoor spaces or in my case, try not to manage them as much. Um, (laughs) And so, and I also looked for people, I looked for people who maybe um, have different ways of going about it, maybe different aesthetics or, or, um, or, um, sort of different budgets. You know, I <clears> have in the book somebody who's quite wealthy and then somebody who lives in a mobile home. And um, and in fact, I, I recently got an email from someone else who lives in a mobile home. I said, can you help us figure out how to do more of this in our community? And I think, you know, um, it's it's really important to show that because, again, people are intimidated by the idea of of gardening of, of any kind of gardening and right. this is less intimidating to them because they're like, you mean I can let some, some things grow? <laughs>
0: yeah. There's less, maybe a little less maintenance involved. Right. 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 Well, I think I could probably talk for <laughs> much more longer. Um, <laughs> But I guess is there any final advice you would give to people who are looking to kind of take this step into this more humane, holistic gardening and, um, and then kind of where they could follow you online, where to buy your book, maybe any other speaking tours you might be having?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think tips for people who are getting started from a practical sense, um, one of the most helpful things would be to – Uh, Go to some of these uh, databases, like Lady Bird Johnson, Wildflower Center, where you are. Um, Audubon has a good one now. Put in your zip code, and you can get so many resources, including plant lists that are local to your area of recommended native species. You know, joining your local native plant society or checking out their website. Um, And... um, availing yourself of some of these regional and local uh, resources, nature centers, all kinds of places are interested in this um, type of uh, gardening and cultivating and spreading the word. But as a philosophical um, sort of way to start, I would say understand that if you're even interested in this topic, you're already a person of compassion and to trust that part of yourself and listen to your instincts and – and question these terms like that you see associated with landscapes all the time, like pest and nuisance and damage and messy and weeds and things like that. And, and, and understanding that human gardening is, doesn't malign the world like that. It doesn't divide things into black and white and is a little bit more, um, introspective and, and, um, tries to understand the world from other species perspectives. And I think, if you start there, you can you really open up your whole world to new ideas out there. Um, so that would be where I would start from a philosophical standpoint.
0: I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your book is available pretty much Amazon, all that good stuff, right?
1: Yes, yeah, so and my book is yeah, and um, and my website is humanegardener.com, and then I have I'm on just at Humane Gardener on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, and I love to hear from people. And I also, one thing I was going to say is that, um, when you start gardening this way, there's a guarantee that animals respond right, and and that humans will eventually respond to your neighbors some might not agree but some some a lot of people like i mentioned earlier just don't know and get really fascinated when they walk by and they see the butterflies on your plants and that initiates a conversation so it's really about going beyond your backyard and your front yard to spreading the word you know um, right being an ambassador
0: right well thank you so much uh for coming on the the show and Putting up with the complications. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. All right. Thank you, and uh, I hope you have a great day. You
1: too. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.